investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors. This is episode 33 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is a cold Friday, September the 27th. It looks like winter is starting out there. Nonetheless, some pretty hot events in the market this week. We're going to be focusing in on IPOs. Initial public offerings, also known as it's probably overpriced or one of my personal favorites, idiots purchase only. Nonetheless, uh, Peloton was a big IPO that happened this week. Its stock fell as much as 15% in its debut during its underwhelming IPO. We're gonna chat about why investors soured on this stock. UFC owner Endeavor pulled its IPO amidst lackluster demand from investors. Why did this IPO flop? Some more WeWork news. Finally, we're probably done with WeWork for a while, but we just wanted to wrap up this one as the CEO, he fired himself after investors lost confidence in the co-working company's leader. What led to his downfall? Lastly, we're gonna chat about uh, Altria and Philip Morris that proposed $200 billion tobacco merger. They actually called off talk, so they scrapped that potential merger uh, amidst regulatory concerns and a big pushback from investors. We're going to chat about those reasons more in depth on the podcast today. We had an underwhelming IPO hit the market this week with Peloton. It fell as much as 15% on its debut day of trading. The fitness equipment maker Peloton, it had a hard time selling, quote, happiness, as its CEO indicated, that's what it does. Uh, But public investors weren't having it as the stock really tanked uh, in the couple days of trading that it had this week. This stock, uh, IPO investors bought it for 29 bucks. It actually opened up on a delayed basis a couple days ago at 27. It actually opened nowhere near its IPO price and ultimately closed below 25 bucks per share. So investors not feeling Peloton on this one. Some details on the deal. This deal raised uh, 1.16 billion and initially valued the fitness company at 8.1 billion, but it did lose 1 billion in market cap on its first day of trading. However, this is significantly higher than the 4.2 billion price tag attached to the company after its last round of private fundraising last August. So just over a year and you're seeing the market cap up over 50%. Just a comment on the general IPO market. I mean, this Peloton IPO comes two weeks after the IPO of Smile Direct Club, which priced its IPO above its marketing range, which you would expect to accompany a bullish or rising share price on its first day. But Smile Direct Club actually tanked pretty significantly. It fell 20% on its first day of trading. This is uh, also coming after underwhelming IPOs from both Uber and Lyft. Uber was a really, really high profile IPO and that's down about 
30% uh, since it made it its public market debut. Shares of its rival Lyft has fallen 40% since their IPO in March. Chewy, the online uh, pet food retailer, they went public in June. Their stock is down over 25%. There's an ETF that invests exclusively in IPOs. It was doing great up until a couple months ago. It's now down about 15% from its peak. However, not all prominent IPOs have floundered. Uh, many of the smaller ones have done quite well. One uh, high-profile deal specifically was Pinterest that IPO'd in April, and it's up about 44%. Um, so investors really had to pick and choose here. But nonetheless, I mean, you're seeing uh, not much of an IPO pop these days. It's turning more into a IPO tankage. What are your thoughts on the recent action in the IPO market in general and Peloton specifically? Yeah, and when you mention the IPO market and some of the pops, it's really some of the companies that, yes, are having losses, but they're true soft true SaaS companies, software as a service companies. Whereas when you get companies like Peloton, WeWork, Uber, Lyft, that are really kind of old world business models, like in the case of WeWork, it's real estate, Peloton, it's uh, you know a fitness bike with, uh, with a physical component with a software overlay, where they're really just adding that software over top. Those are the ones that you're actually seeing the really poor IPO performance in. And just in terms of numbers, going into the year, investment bankers were really excited about 2019 as this was seen as the year that a lot of these really large private companies were going to go public and there would be a, you know, a bonanza of fees. And so, so far this year, we've seen $53 billion raised in the IPO market, which is the most since 2014 when $77 billion was raised. Uh, and but that keep in mind that most of that was raised. Uh, I believe twenty five billion dollars was raised just by Alibaba that year. So that's kind of an outlier. Whereas mm -hmm. this year, you've had a number of really large IPOs. And, and in terms of for the fees for the investment bankers, uh, specific to Peloton, despite the poor trading performance post IPO so far, uh, the underwriters are splitting about sixty million dollars in fees after helping them raise, as you had mentioned, just over a billion dollars. And those underwriters, I believe co-underwriting was Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. Um, and they've been very, very popular <clears throat> with these tech companies, hybrid tech companies that have been going public this year. Right, and with respect to your point on money losing IPOs, I think the main reason why investors have been so skeptical and the share price performance has been quite poor on the IPO of these money losing companies is that these ones specifically don't have a present a clear picture to investors on a path to profitability, which is ultimately needed to have a successful investment. As we have previously discussed, WeWork's um, IPO prospectus, they really gave no path to profitability. And we saw something similar uh, with respect to Uber. And that's why you're seeing these IPOs really come out of fashion. But you indicated uh, SaaS and other software type businesses where investors believe they can scale and ultimately become profitable within the next few years. They still have faith in, in those types of IPOs and those uh stocks continue to do well. So we're seeing an interesting divergence between IPO performance uh, depending on the business model. 
UFC owner Endeavor, they pulled their IPO amidst lackluster demand. So it's really in the midst of weak investor demand, as we you know previously discussed ad nauseum, just a lot of IPOs these days are for money losing entities of which Endeavor is one. I believe in terms of total IPOs, we're seeing as high as 80% of them being unprofitable companies. So they, and really the investors here, they had two problems with the Endeavor IPO and why it couldn't get off the ground. Number one, just recent poor performance of other IPOs. Specifically, they cited Peloton tanking in its debut a couple days ago. Endeavor was actually supposed to start trading today, but obviously that didn't happen. And then the other thing is just uh, valuation. I mean, I believe Endeavor was trying to come out at uh, $8 billion, which was a really aggressive valuation in investors' minds. So there's really tepid demand with respect to that. Now, what Endeavor does, they're a real powerhouse in Hollywood. Uh, they manage uh, entertain- entertainers. They're, they're run by uh, super agent Ari Emanuel. And uh, they're known for owning the UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship, and the Miss Universe pageant. Now, this IPO, it was led by Goldman Sachs, who has been leading a lot of these uh, high-profile IPOs. They targeted to raise more than $600 million uh, by selling shares in a price range of 30 to 32 bucks a share. That was the initial range. This was actually lowered to 26 to 27 bucks a share, and they still couldn't get it done as they repriced it lower. That would have valued them at about $7.2 Now, this was above the $6.3 billion valuation that the company commanded in 2017. Uh, They scored a $1 billion investment from uh, CPP, the Canada Pension Plan, and Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund. So what's interesting about that is that uh, given the CPP owns a material stake in Endeavor, uh, it appears that uh, every single Canadian owns a portion of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, which is a pretty cool thing. Nonetheless, this is actually the second time Endeavor hit the brakes on its IPO this year, which begs the question, are they ever going to go public? Yeah, and and the other interesting aspect is you mentioned uh, CPPIB and uh, some other investors as well. Silver Lake owns a significant minority uh, position. They're a large PE firm in the U.S. and SoftBank which they had their own challenges with WeWork. So not a very good week uh, for SoftBank as they own 5% of Endeavor. But in terms of, you know, what was the rationale for doing their IPO? Now, it was a fairly leveraged company. I don't have the numbers right in front of me right now, but part of the use of proceeds was to pay down a portion of that debt. Right, and I remember specifically when they did the UFC buyout for $4 billion, it was an LBO. I believe they levered that deal at least six times EBITDA, which is a, a highly leveraged uh, leveraged bio. Absolutely. And then the other use of proceeds and part of their strategic shift. Now, you did mention that they're led by Ari Emanuel, which fans of the HBO show Entourage will recognize him as being the inspiration for the Ari Gold character, um, which, is, which is quite interesting. But it was really 
a, a shift from the pure agency model that Ari Emanuel had started um, who really transformed them. It's an over 100-year-old company technically, but really he kind of transformed it in 1995 um, when he, he split from his previous agency. And really moving into more of a media conglomerate, buying the Miss Universe pageant, UFC, and they're looking at a number of other assets. So it's really part of this strategic shift that they're looking at uh, that right now the market just really doesn't have much of a desire for. So Endeavor had a failed IPO, and we're going to talk about another company that recently had a failed IPO, WeWork. They actually had uh, a number of huge changes at the company. The CEO, Adam Newman, he's a controversial co-founder of uh, startup WeWork, which is basically the king in the co-working leasing space. He actually ousted himself as the CEO after this failed IPO, and he really faced uh, pretty much a boardroom coup after the company's largest investor, SoftBank, put pressure on Newman after the IPO flopped. Basically, he was saying that uh, investors lost faith in Newman's leadership and they wanted a fresh face at the top of the company. Now, the failed IPO happened as estimates of WeWork's value fell by tens of billions of dollars amid investors' concern about its corporate governance, which we've touched on a lot in the past, inability uh, on its future ability to generate uh, profit. As we know, WeWork is losing billions of dollars per year, just burning through a ton of cash, which is why I was so reliant on this IPO getting done. And now they're really scrambling. They're selling businesses. They're cutting a ton of jobs, really trying to save um, money, stem the cash burn. And they really need to come up with billions of dollars in financing that they really were relying on here. So it's a really interesting situation as things seem to be spiraling out of control a little bit at WeWork. But nonetheless, SoftBank's Masayoshi Son, who basically financed WeWork to the tune of over $10 billion, He's basically the biggest victim of what happened here. He pumped a ton of money into it the last time at a $47 billion valuation. And by the time the IPO was pulled, estimates of WeWork's valuation have dropped all the way down to as low as $10 billion. Now, interesting point on this story is that when investment banks were initially pushing to win the IPO business, they were t saying that they could take WeWork out at valuations as high as 90 to 100 billion. So it really gives uh, listeners a sense of what investment banks are willing to do to land a deal and the sort of uh, nonsense they're willing to feed to founders and CEOs of startup or private companies when they are looking to win that IPO mandate. But nonetheless, uh, there's a message from the board to Newman. Basic message was, listen, this IPO has gotten distracted by you. There was just so many corporate governance issues here. We talked about how he sold the trademark to the word we to the company for six to seven million bucks. He had a uh, $65 million G650 private jet, which he uh, traveled around the world in, and he got busted with drugs in uh, the Middle East on it. He actually hired a driver. It was a WeWork employee to drive him around in his luxury Maybach uh, automobile. 
and um, you know just tons of stories of insider dealing whether it be buying properties renting them back to WeWork he cashed out nearly a billion dollars in pre-IPO stock prior to it going public publics a week ago on and on with the massive red flags raised on this file it was really tremendous like I've never seen anything like it but nonetheless really not surprised as to what happened here. Investors balked at not just the valuation, but the corporate governance issues. And ultimately, Newman's head rolling on this one. I mean, he can't stay CEO. The company's desperate for money. They're planning on raising $9 billion, and now they have nothing. I saw an estimate that they, at current burn rate, they could run out of money by uh, next summer. So what are your thoughts on what's going to happen with WeWork here? Yeah, and just for context, our, our listeners may wonder, you know, why does the corporate governance of, you know, one one tech company, you know, hybrid tech company matter? You know, them doing having horrible corporate governance, why does it matter? Why why have we focused on this on the podcast? And I really saw this as kind of a, a, a crossing of the Rubicon of sorts. If this IPO went through with those terms of what public investors would be willing to let a, uh, a founder and a management team get away with at a high growth tech company. And, you know, what this really showed is that there is a limit to the bad corporate governance. Now, just for an example, I just wanted to highlight some of the voting rights and how this kind of played played through on his super voting structure was originally, you'll remember that he had 20 to one voting rights. And then last week, as as they were getting a lot of pushback on the IPO, that was reduced to 10 to 1 in, a, in an attempt to appease investors. And then now that he's stepped down, it's 3 to 1. Now, it, the company hasn't officially disclosed how much Newman owns of the company, but its insiders say it's about 25%. So he still does control a voting majority with the 3 to 1 voting rights, but it does you know they will be raising money in the future so there is still a chance that like at some point that he won't have the majority interest there in terms of the vote um but as well i really just wanted to highlight that this as you had mentioned that now the growth narrative on this company is over officially Mm -hmm. um i mean they've now halted all new leases as you had mentioned they're looking to make uh job cuts up to perhaps 50 percent are some of the reports and you know selling off some of their recent acquisitions that were bought at, you know, inflated prices. Um, But, you know, really, to me, like the the issue, like what they're really trying to show is that their current properties are profitable and show that to investors. But to me, this really wasn't the issue. I mean, there's corporate governance issues as well. But the losses because of growth were not an issue. If they showed in their S1, if they showed unit economics on current properties with real numbers and showed that those properties were profitable, but that why they had losses were because of the growth initiatives and that there was just a J curve where you have initial losses and then in the future, you will be able to harvest those and uh, harvest a lot of profits from those locations. Investors would be very fine with that, but what happened was they they had no disclosure on the actual unit economics of the business, and now looking at it currently where they're really just hunkering down, making a defensive move, cutting costs, 
Like this is no longer a growth stock. It's no longer should have be supportive of this massive multiple to their revenue. Right. And really what the issue here is they have a very close competitor in the market. I mean, Regis does the exact same thing and they prove that it's a valid business model, can be profitable and can get a good valuation in the market. But what WeWork was trying to do is spend money like crazy, grow like crazy amidst losses that were spiraling out of control to get an egregious valuation. And that game really stopped working. Uh, ultimately, just things fell apart, investors balked at the deal, and certainly corporate governance played a huge role in that. It got investors to wake up and be like, look, the pricing on this is crazy, the business model as it currently is set doesn't make sense. However, that doesn't mean that it won't make sense uh, in a restructured form. In conclusion, one of the biggest victims here, I guess aside from uh, WeWork shareholders, WeWork employees, and it's a former CEO. One of the biggest victims is SoftBank because it's out raising its second vision fund, which it aims to be above a hundred billion. And they're doing this as the wheels are really falling off the IPO market. We worked IPO, failed miserably. Endeavors did, Peloton's not doing good. Ton of other high profile IPOs are down double digits. And what the vision fund strategy is to invest in pre-IPO private companies and then flip it to public markets and an inflated valuation. And what's happening here is that public markets are saying, hey, your private market valuations are crazy. We're not going to bail you out at inflated valuations. And that is exactly why you're seeing so many failed IPOs. And if they don't fail, you're seeing a lot of high profile IPOs trade very poorly with significant losses. Some M&A news with major IPO implications. What happened in the market this week is that tobacco companies Altria and Philip Morris, they actually called off merger talks. One of the main reasons was there's a vaping crisis at 35% owned by Altria, a company called Juul, which offers vaping products. So the Altria and Philip Morris deal was going to be one of the largest mergers of all time. It was a $200 billion proposed combination. This was shelved uh, in addition to this massive increase in regular, regulatory scrutiny on vaping products and Juul was really broad investors skepticism on the deal. Uh, what these companies do, I'll just give you a little bit of background, is uh, they sell Mar the Marlboro brand as a main one. Altria sells it in the U.S. and Philip Morris sells it internationally. They're going to merge in an all-share merger deal. We talked about this last month on the podcast. This deal was pitched as a way for the companies to spread their bets on the future of nicotine consumption. As we know, uh, tobacco use declining pretty significantly, obviously massive health risks, people trying to be healthier, and they're aware that uh, obviously smoking cigarettes is a very unhealthy and uh, the market is really viewing um, vaping or smokeless tobacco products as a much healthier choice to get your nicotine fix and that's why Altria ultimately paid almost 13 billion dollars to take a 35 percent stake in Juul Labs. Now this was really their play to combat the declining cigarette market and Juul has actually seized about 70% of US e-cigarette sales. So they're a massive player in e-cigarettes. But what happened was that um, there's massive regular, regulatory crackdown recently. Uh, 
um, in the U.S. and it's spreading internationally as U.S. regulators and politicians, they're really cracking down on vaping products. They're looking to outright ban flavored e-cigarettes, which they point to a massive increase in high uh, rates of use in youth uh, e-cigarette users. Um, there's also concern on disease caused by vaping, but nonetheless, flavored e-cigarettes represent 80% of Juul's sales. And if the U.S. bans that, the valuation on Juul is obviously going to drop significantly from the uh, roughly 35 billion in which Altria invested in it. So that was one major concern specifically from PMI, Philip Morris shareholders. The other was that um, you know PMI shareholders expressing a lot of concern about the exposure of Altria's declining and litigation-wracked US cigarette market. Altria shareholders not too keen on doing a deal in which they don't get any sort of control premium. It was pitched as more of a merger of equals, but uh, investors understood it as PMI acquiring Altria. But nonetheless, as we discussed previously, the share prices of these companies tanked upon deal announcement. It was really an investor revolt, so we're really not surprised. We sent a very low probability of this deal actually happening. Um, but obviously today, on the deal announcement of the deal talks over, Philip Morris shareholders quite happy with it. The shares rallying north 5% and Altria kind of stuck in the mud. Their shares were flat. This deal also has major potential implications on the IPO market because I'm sure at one point we are going to expect uh, Jewel Labs to IPO, right? Absolutely. And so just in terms of, to put into context, the market that Jewel is in, you know, it's expected to be a $5.6 billion market in the, in the U.S. But the other really interesting stat that quite actually surprised me was that 27.5% of high school students reported that they had tried an e-cigarette in the last month, um, which is you know, very high numbers. Uh, and so that's really what was drawing this ban on mint and fruity flavors that are pop very popular among high school students. Um, as you'd mentioned, that would this ban would really provide a lot of damage to the Jewel business model. Um, but this this U.S. ban is actually a little bit reactionary to what's happening globally. As you had mentioned briefly, India has actually banned the sale of all e-cigarettes and China has stopped the sale of Jewel products in the country. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But in terms of share price action um, between Altria and Philip Morris, uh, since the Trump announcement of the ban on certain flavors, is Altria has been down 8%, which is not surprising given their exposure to Jewel. Um, although there was a little bit of positive sentiment in the stock when you looked at some of the analyst reports, as some analysts believe that the restrictions on e-cigarettes could shift uh, demand from the, the, the shift that was going from cigarettes to vaping, that it may reverse some of that. Um, but, you know, it's a little bit too early to uh, be seen on that. And I can't really see that being, you know, I, or at least I couldn't see the ship being positive for Altria uh, in the long term. But they were down 8%. Philip Morris, uh, their short shares were actually up 
just over 1% since the announcement. So a little bit less immune to this e-cigarette ban, although Philip Morris uh, is coming out with their own brand of uh, e-cigarette. They, they'd have different branding on it as it's just another he- heating mechanism for tobacco. Yeah, I believe that's IQOS, and it actually works differently. It's not vaporizing, it's just heating but not burning the tobacco. And that one specifically faces less risk, I believe, because it does come with FDA approval. And so that's kind of a big, uh, big competitive advantage for that product. A couple of things that you mentioned I wanted to discuss. Number one, the price action on Altria, you said down 8%. Off the top of my head, I believe that probably represents around $8 billion in loss valuation. Ultimately, you can point to what happened with Juul here. They put $12.8 billion into Juul, and I believe that $8 billion loss is nearly 100% attributed to that investment. So if you triangulate the numbers, that's uh, more than a 50% wipeout on Juul's valuation. And if it was publicly traded in its own right, losing 80% of its sales to a regulatory ban, you can clearly argue that the stock would be down significantly, at least more down more than 50%. The other thing is one of the reasons or the main reason that the regulators and politicians cracked down on this, as you indicated, was the massive increase in youth use of these e-cigarettes. And what they were doing is they're actually marketing heavily on Instagram, Facebook, obviously platforms that a lot of youths use, not to mention the flavored e-cigarettes that makes it really attractive to uh, kids, basically. So that was a big no-no. And uh, similar to WeWork, we saw the CEO get fired. So heads are rolling for the strategy there. They're looking to bring in more professional management and turn around the ship at Jewel. Nonetheless, the market wouldn't be surprised to see merger talks between PMI and Altria continue uh, in the future further down the road once some of these regulatory issues are resolved. But at this point, this deal is dead for now. We didn't put out a blog post this week. We're too busy working on my book. That's right, I put out a book. It's titled Reminiscences of a Hedge Fund Operator. That's a little hat tip to one of the best books on finance and trading and markets in general, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by uh, Edwin Lafarve, which tells the story of trader Jesse Livermore and his life. I really encourage investors to read that. I also encourage listeners to check out my book. If you go to our website, accelerateshares.com, you can check it out give it a download. It is a free ebook for now. It should be on Amazon in physical and Kindle form by uh, October. So in a few weeks, but for now you can enjoy the free ebook. But that wraps things up for episode 33 of the Absolute Return podcast. As always, if you liked it, you can check out more episodes on absolutereturnpodcast.com. That's it for us. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review. Give us a shout out on Twitter. Tell your friends about it. But until next week, we will chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. 
The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.